Welcome to Luthier's Tales. I'm Ben Liggett, Luthier and owner of Liggett Guitars. Every episode, I interview someone that is passionate about their craft. This week, I'm speaking with Dion James, owner of Dion Guitars. Dion's acoustic guitars are simple, elegant, yet completely recognizable. He uses modern bracing and building techniques to achieve a tone that's as straightforward and clear as his guitar's aesthetics are. For more information on Dion's guitars, visit dionguitars.ca. If you like the podcast, please leave me a rating on iTunes and subscribe. That helps other people find the show. Let's get into it. Oh, man. Dion James, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, man. How about yourself? Man, doing awesome. We spoke a little bit uh, before the uh, recording started, but I really appreciate you doing the podcast. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I I appreciate that. Man, the world is small. We have a mutual friend, uh, Danny McBride. I forgot about this again, but yeah, that's so weird to me. But yeah, awesome. So I was in a bar in downtown Tulsa one night, and there were these two loud, uh, kind of drunk Canadians, <laughs> and they quickly befriended me and a couple of my friends and started buying us drinks and, uh, you know, using a lot of a. And man, you're 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 good shit, man. I like I like you, a. And, and I was like, man, these guys are a hoot. And um, so me and Danny became Facebook friends. And um, he, I was building banjos at the time, and he was really uh, interested in that and everything. And he said, oh, I have a friend who builds guitars. And sure enough, I knew of you and followed you on Instagram and all that stuff. And I was like, man, the world's small. It's very small because like Danny and I are from a small place in a, in a, in a sparsely populated country in the, the most, one of the most sparsely populated provinces in like a very rural area. So the really of you crossing with someone from that world are very, very small, you know? Yeah. So he and his friend are oil workers and they were in town uh, doing some work related to that. Right. Yeah. And it was just, uh, it was really fun. It was, it was a, a cool chance meeting, man. Uh, so your guitars are are extremely unique. Um, they're they're very simple and elegant. Um, like your your headstock. If I had to describe it to someone, I feel like I'd have a hard time describing it. It's not out of the norm yet completely recognizable, which I find um, when it comes to like the design of something visual uh, subtlety um, is one of the hardest things to do. Um, And you do it so well. Um, So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Like, how do you, what's your approach like when it comes to the appearance of your instruments? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I guess first I've I've been at this a fairly long time. and never building that many instruments in a year because my mind doesn't let me work quick. I, I fuss over the details, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's also been a blessing because it, I think it becomes apparent in the final product at this point, at this many years on. Um, but, but really anything that I'm interested in is uh, a paired back, tasteful, well executed whatever so whether it's music um arts urban design fashion i i like i like a nice white t-shirt and a good pair of jeans you know Mm -hmm. and they have to be fit right and made of quality cotton and and i think that's how i inform all of my design as well as like all the ideas go on a page and then what can you pull back? What can you pull back and then do it to the best of one's ability? And I, I think that is what informs all of my designs. Mm. Just throw everything out and then strip it back, strip it back to what is necessary and what yields the cohesive final end result. Yeah. Yeah, I can see it for sure. Uh, I even see it inside... Um 
inside the box, as they say, uh, the inside of your guitars with the the bracing and um, just the way everything is laid laid out. Everything is insanely clean. Um, I wanted to ask you about some of your building methods because I feel like nothing inside your guitar is uh, normal or uh, traditional, as they'd say. Um, you do structured sides, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, what What's your thought process behind the reasoning for that? Um, well, first off, I'll, I'll give credit to the person who who taught me that method. His name is Jeremy Clark, um, uh, a brilliant man in, in all areas of his life, but um, an excellent classical guitar builder, 52 Instrument Co. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I shared a shop with him for, and, and Michael Kennedy of Indian Hill Instruments, and uh, now of Michael Kennedy Guitars, and uh, Nick DeLille of Island Instruments for quite a number of years, three or four maybe. And Jeremy is fearless in his pursuit of new ideas. He doesn't get bogged down by tradition. And I certainly picked that up from him. Um, so so the idea of the, of the rigid sides or the structured sides is that... Um, of course, an acoustic instrument is a is an air pump. Mm-hmm. Any of the energy um, that is transferred from one's hand through the string and into the the body into the chamber that um, isn't used to move the air column is wasted potential energy. And so the sides, if they're vibrating, they can't meaningfully add to the movement of air and thus the production of sound. So anything you can do under my building method anything one can do to uh, bring those out of the equation and make them solid uh, and, and a place that doesn't sap energy from the actual air pump itself. So that's the thinking behind the, the rigid structured sides. Yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. And, and you do not just laminated sides, but uh, uh, let's say like a, almost like a curved, uh, it's, it's, piece. Yeah. it's like if you took your curve traditional curved lining and rather than cutting them into strips and rounding them over and just left them full width that's that's what you end up with does that allow you um uh to not to avoid liners altogether? yeah that's, that's right because they, they are the liners then wow but what i um <clears throat> it's interesting how one's designs shift over time. So I adopted it because I implicitly trust Jeremy's judgment on what works. He's very scientifically minded. He's quantified it. It works. So I, so I adopted and, you know, shift the measurements over to accommodate a steel string design. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I started to build with them, I saw results and I started to think about why this is working. And I think that happens. You don't always know before you, spent some time with the finished result or finished finished product why it works and i got to thinking one day as i was bracing my soundboard and at that point i was still tucking all my braces around the outside edge <clears throat> and i realized that of course the, the x brace as we know it in say like a traditional sort of martin style acoustic instrument is not only there to support the load you know of the strings on the soundboard but it's also there to support the sides from folding in themselves over its lifetime, which they do, it sort of trusses the entire rim. Mm-hmm. And so I realized at that point that this rim was so rigid that it had already been using for a number of years that I could start to clip away at the ends of my braces and increase the active area of the soundboard because I did not need to support the sides with the top bracing. I see. And so it freed up a huge amount of real estate on the soundboard um, because that load didn't need to be supported in that way anymore. So yeah, there's no need to um, tuck braces in. They can just end uh, inside the perimeter of the sides. Yeah, that's right. And it depends where like anything um, in the upper area where the bridge is leaning into, I tuck because I want the rigidity there. I really think about the instrument um, 
you know, there's a lot of talk about lightness of build. And, and I think that uh, that is true where it ought to be light, but there are areas where it ought to be stiff, rigid and have mass. And so I tuck where necessary and I decouple as much as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, what areas do you find need to be the most rigid? Well, that center column of load, you know, um, from f essentially following the string's path up towards the headstock, mm -hmm. you know, <clears throat> um, it, it's going to cave in around the sound hole under traditional methods. Um, and so I want that sort of column up to the heel block um, to be rigid. That's sort of like, uh, I kind of think of it as like a solid body electric in that area. It's, it's, it's just a rigid column. All it's doing there is supporting the load. Right. I'm not make it light enough to vibrate. That's not its job in that area. And so then once I know I've made rigid sides and this column up towards the heel block rigid enough to hold the load, I can start to loosen from there out. You, um, you use a, uh, I don't know if you use it exclusively these days or not, but kind of a U shaped brace that comes down from the, uh, heel block down around the sound hole and back up to the heel block, um, to form that column. Um, it, it, are you using that all the time now? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I built one as a prototype and I built it alongside out of the same exact woods, uh, it's sort of my, my X brace I've been, well, I was using prior to that and the results were undeniable and something I can't turn back on now. So yeah, it's, it's my standard now. That's great. And that's, uh, I, I haven't seen anybody else, uh, do a bracing of that shape either. So it's cool. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how we all influence each other though, because I think the Falcate pattern makes so much sense, at least the way I think about, um, instrument design. And I just think this, you can make a, a great instrument in, in a million different ways and we all choose our own and that gives us our own voices. Um, I didn't, I don't know why I didn't just say adopt a falcate, but I certainly took some of that thinking in that um, as you get towards the waist, it, it gets stiffer just because the span of the soundboard is shorter. So of course it's stiffer without changing the mass at all. Um, and so when the X tucks up into that uh, waist region, it becomes extremely rigid, but not only in that region, it makes the rigid of uh, the, the area just below that in the lower belt, which is our, our main sound producing or air moving area, um, very rigid as well. And so by bringing that U brace in, you know, the three inches between the waist and that U brace aren't meaningful in, um, how much air that space can move. But below that, there's, you know, one of the biggest areas of the soundboard is no longer stiffened up by that intersection between the X and the waist. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think I've, I've made my, the biggest gains is in that area right there. Gives you a lot more freedom everywhere else. Yeah, it gives room for more dynamic movement of the soundboard. Another aspect of your guitars that kind of made me go like, huh, what's going on here? Was your your backs can you tell me about your backs and the uh, the lack of bracing as i think is uh only ethical I'll, I'll also pay credit for that and that's also jeremy clark of 52 instruments a big influence on my building in general if i can um be a little uh, divergent here for a second um sure when i was in my mid-20s i was living in in Saskatchewan, that's a province in Canada, uh, where Danny's from as well. I moved to Alberta, one province over. I met my current partner uh, and the mother of my children now. And I asked her if she wanted to move to Montreal with me very short after uh, we began our relationship. And, and I was looking for builders. This is early days internet. I had no idea there was a world of guitar builders, you know? Mm -hmm. And I moved to Montreal. Within weeks, went to a party. It was at the Mylan Guitar Shop, which at that point was just Mike and Jeremy. And they invited me in and it completely changed my life trajectory um, and the way I build guitars. And so I just feel like I need to pay credit there. 
um, and so the back design, um, I would say that it still is braced. It's just internally braced. So um, <clears throat> the way I look at it is that when you build a, a standard steel string back or a, a, an acoustic back, um, you're either seeking to make a pure reflector, which is a, you know, a rigid back where the air column driven you know, from the bridge through the soundboard just bounces off, comes back, or you're, act, or, or, or you're choosing to make an active back, which is something that adds um, tonal quality, you know, color, um, and, and, and can amplify the air column. And so that's the method I've chosen. So once I've made that decision, the traditional ladder brace back under the way I understand the guitar seems flawed in that you can't evenly move that air column because you've got something, uh, a plate that is loose and then stiff for braces and then loose and then stiff for braces. Whereas by making a hollow core back, so it's no max, it's like a honeycomb paper product in the center. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, series of laminations, I can test and thickness each of those pieces of the structure to voice my back in that way, I can control the stiffness in multiple directions. But what I can end up with is something that's very evenly stiff. And so when the air column, you know, your, your, your thumb or your pick hits the string, drives the energy into the bridge, excites the air column in the soundboard. Now it heads towards the back and the back is so even, think about a trampoline. It, it, uh, it takes that energy and 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 springs it right back up towards the top, and you get this really wonderful um, uh, reverb and sustain built in. Um, in fact, so much so that I had to start to pare back the efficiencies because it was just a bit too much. Mm. Was it, it like too lush? Too loud. Um, like your fingers when you touch the fingerboard, you know, would just squeak, and you would hear everything. I found some people loved it if they were really clean players. Sure. But there wasn't room for a flub because it just, it was so loud. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, it, it, I, I built one acoustic with a, a lattice braced back. Yeah, right. And, and, and it was considerably louder than uh, most ladder braced guitars that I've played. So it, it makes sense, you know, uh, the trampoline analogy that you made. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that um, connection. Mm -hmm. The lattice brace, I think, is is a is an attempt at the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, well, obviously, a lot more mass there than what you're doing. That that Nomex is a, a popular thing, or or it was a big uh, trend in the classical guitars. You know, the Nomex tops. Yeah, that people were doing. Um, yeah, it, it makes sense. You know, strength to weight ratio is kind of the name of the game with the acoustics. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and just um, just in terms of the amount of work, a lattice brace back is like uh, an incredible amount of work, you know, carving all those uh, interlocking braces. Yeah, and nightmare. Thicknessing and laminating, um, at least I think, is much simpler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So when you, when you glue the sandwich together, um, you doing that in a form so that you get a radius on the back? Yeah, that's right. Um, my backs were a fifteen foot. I, I don't do um, I don't do a spherical back or or soundboard. I do um, they're a section of a cylinder more. You know, they're only mm -hmm. in a single direction. I see. Um, for me, that's mostly about ergonomics. It it essentially makes it a double sided wedge. It makes a guitar that. I'm a very small person and it, it leans the guitar towards you and makes it narrow where your body wraps over it without losing air volume. Cause you can still have it being deep enough at the end block and heel block. Um, yeah. Does that present any challenges in terms of the geometry um, of the body when say you look at it from the heel um, it being a cylinder rather than like a even radius. Not that I've come across. Um, no, I don't think so. Um, 
maybe there might have been a bit more janking around to get the the neck coming at the right angle, but I now do a slightly elevated neck. Mm -hmm. so my neck angle is actually straight. Um, there's no neck angle. I get the elevation and the trajectory or projection over the bridge from the thickness of the elevation underneath my fingerboard. Ah. So it's all straight, just comes in straight now. So it's quite easy actually. Interesting. What's your method for as far as um, the way the neck attaches to the body? Yeah, I use the the, the increasingly popular uh, bolted mortise and tenon, both like under the fingerboard and uh, for the you know the neck joint mortise and tenon as well. Mm -hmm. I got it from one of my favorite builders, Ben Wilborn. Yeah, um, and I don't know where he got it from, but I've I've since learned that it, uh, maybe. Trevor Gore maybe came up with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I've listened to Trevor Gore uh, speak about building a lot. And, you know, he he experiments with adding mass to the sides. Mm -hmm. I love that. Have you, have you heard him speak about uh, laminated sides? Not specifically. Or I did. I think it must have been on... Um, Michael Bashkin's podcast, Luthier on Luthier. Yeah. That I heard him and I heard him talk about, it. and then I'm, I'm good friends with um, um, Rye, like GR Bear Guitars. Mm -hmm. And he does some of that. So, you know, that putting the block in the side that you can screw or like bolt weights to. Yeah. Um, I think it's fascinating. And it just like anecdotally, people don't like the feeling of a heavy guitar, but heavier sides in my mind sound better <laughs> yeah yeah it's kind of interesting uh because I, I i heard him talk so much about it and it made a lot of sense but then i thought about well i always lean towards the um the laminated sides as well it made sense to me um and i always just wondered what his thoughts were on that but he's a brilliant guy i mean he is uh i i i haven't read his books but it's interesting how his ideas have just permeated the building world and and in ways sometimes people don't even know they've have adopted his thinking because it's just become so sort of commonplace in in the industry but really comes at it from a way that i can appreciate i'm a very romantic guy i love you know the romance of the old craftspeople building these wonderful instruments but they're not mysterious things they're air pumps they're mm -hmm. made of materials you can quantify the material properties. And I love that he came at it from that angle. And that's not, that doesn't take away from the beauty or the romance of the instrument to me. Um, but they really are understandable things. Yeah. Yeah. There, there seems to be like people that approach it very scientifically and people that approach it, um, intuitively, you know, um, yeah. And they often seem to end up at similar places or with similarly um, adequate results. Yeah, and I just think that, like, well, I think one of the things that um, the handmade world, whether it be electric or acoustic, um, you know, it's really, I think it's going through a real wonderful period. It's increasing in popularity and awareness. There's a lot of um, uh, innovation going on right now. Um, and I think that that's it. It's, it's a place where like personality and individual thought can come through the builder's hands into something. And there isn't a bad guitar after a certain point. Does it have enough volume? Does it stay in tune? You know, is the fit and finish good after that it's subjective. And so I don't think there's a right way. Um, and so whether you take it as like a, a scientific method or you're a feel person, you know, you're going to build an interesting and good guitar. Yeah. Yeah, once you meet the the basic threshold, then it's like just different flavors. Yeah, and that's what people come to us for. Um, you know, if somebody, uh, a client or a dealer or, or whatever came to me and wanted a guitar that was completely out of my wheelhouse, but I recognized it as one of my peers' areas of expertise, um, I would definitely just try to direct them towards that peer rather than trying to imagine how, how I would accomplish that goal, you know? And I think that's really, I love that about the industry. It doesn't know. I, I rarely feel like I'm in competition with 
the rest of you folk. I feel like we're in cooperation in some way of pushing the instrument forward. Yeah. I, I've never met a group of people uh, more willing to share ideas and like help um, other people in the, their exact same field. Uh, everyone's just so open to uh, sharing, you know, their design philosophies or their build philosophies and try to help each other out. It's really a, a neat little club to be a part of. Yeah, it's it's super cool. Um, I feel like there's a bit of a recognition that, uh, you know, we don't live in isolation and that you give something that you're also now going to be seen by your peers as someone who they can give something to. So you gave it away and then you can also receive. And I think if you get cagey about your ideas, then probably just quietly people decide not to share their ideas with you. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a, kind of a karma thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I try not to talk about my own builds too much, but I wanted to ask you a question because I've been doing a thing with electric guitars where I put a lot of chambering in the body and then put a heavy solid brass, I call it a tone block, mm -hmm. on the back of the guitar. And the strings feed through the block and the bridge bolts directly into the block through the body. And through this combination of things, I find that the guitar vibrates a lot more and produces more unplugged sound. Um, and I wanted to ask you about it because <clears throat> I'll post about it and people ask me like, how does this work? Why does this work kind of thing? And I find myself like having to, um, explain it and I don't really know why it works. It just works. Um, but you're speaking about the air pump made me kind of even more confused about why it works because an electric guitar that doesn't have a soundboard is not an air pump. No. Um, it just kind of gives it like a, a rumble. That's interesting. That, that a normal solid body guitar doesn't have. I mean, have only having only built one electric guitar ever, although I certainly um, have been along for this wonderful uh, ride that, Layla has been on with tuna tone instruments, you know, I taught her oh, yeah. guitars, so I've never really built electric guitars, but I sort of taught her the woodworking component and the geometry and stuff. But, um, and her guitars sound great and are very lightweight. They sound mm -hmm. amazing. Um, it is interesting. If I think about that in terms of an acoustic guitar, you know, there's a lot of talk about tone woods. And I think there's a, uh, an analog here because you're talking about mass. And often when someone says like, does Coca Bola sound better than, rosewood let's say or a, a mahogany let's say mm -hmm. um all we're talking about is mass and, and i guess like you know stiffness in certain directions but mostly we're talking about mass and i feel like there's something about you, you mentioned a rumble that comes from this i i think about the sound of a heavier wood mm -hmm. uh, as lethargic and that doesn't isn't usually like a, a flattering attribute of, of say a human but uh, mm -hmm. there's i think there's a warmth and a color that comes from something that takes a little longer to get going. But then, of course, once it's in motion, it stays in motion longer. There's like a, a pleasing sound that comes from that. And I wonder if that's part of the, the brass tone block phenomenon. Yeah, I, I almost feel like, like there's more vibration. And so it's like the string vibration is kind of like doing a feedback loop kind of thing. Around it, right? So there's the brass block, mm -hmm. and the rest of the instrument's built quite light. Like you're trying to chamber it and make it lighter weight. I wonder if you're getting a bit of like a an acoustic guitar effect. It kind of sounds like a bridge, right? The biggest brace on the on the acoustic guitar is is the bridge itself, and it's right sort of set and it it, it once set into motion uh, under some people's build philosophy. The heavier bridge, you know, sets into motion, and that's where you get your sustain from. I wonder if that's it might be as simple as like, uh, you know, like a, a ladder braced back 
will create, um, I don't know if I'm saying the correct term, but like a monopole direction of vibration. Um, uh, the up and down, the base response. Well, like it's, it's like rippling from neck to tail block, you know what I mean? Rather than twisting or side to side. I wonder if it's just like uh, as simple as that. Like if I, I wonder if the, if the chambers were just horizontal chambers going all the way up, it would be uh, the same, a similar effect. I don't know. Experiment with that. Yeah, electric guitars are are fascinating to me. They're just a completely different set of challenges, you know. Yeah. Well, I may cut that out. I don't know. <laughs> but I just wanted to posit no, that question I, I to you. A post today you put out about it, and I was like, huh, how, how does that work? I have yeah. no idea it does. I don't. I don't know how it works. <laughs> so I find myself like having to justify it or something. I'm like, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. That's <laughs> right. There's so many variables. It's hard to quantify the, uh, you know, what one change in design does because there's just so many variables. Even if you're attempting to be, uh, you know, extremely consistent, there's just so many variables to, to contend with. Yeah. It, that's another thing about like, working with um, organic materials that I like. Um, I don't know why, but just like the thought of making a carbon fiber acoustic or a carbon fiber or say, uh, you know, there's some good electric guitars with aluminum necks mm -hmm. and things like that. I just have no interest in that. I really like wood and the unique flavor that different pieces of wood tend to, uh, give different instruments yeah yeah I, I love it too you know I, I certainly use carbon fiber in areas of my instrument because i think it's the right material at the right moment but i agree that i i, I again speaking more about acoustic guitars because that's what i know better but each builder has their own flavor they sound a certain way but still every single instrument within a builder's you know career even adjacent instruments where let's say like the skill set and experience are very similar. You can try all you want, but there's an organic material that is inconsistent. And because of that, you get variation and you get beautiful variation. Mm -hmm. and it would probably not hold much interest for me either. If I knew I could just make the exact same sounding instrument every time, like there's always a little bit of mystery. Yeah. Like this is going to be, it's going to sound like one of my guitars. But then there's something else that's going to happen that I am not fully in control of. And I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That wouldn't be any fun to <laughs> have them all sound exactly the same. No. Um, let me ask you about uh, your customers. Like what, what kind of people come to you for uh, a Dion guitar? Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's quite a diverse crowd. Um, I can't, you know, and different playing styles. Something I can, I can sort of identify as a commonality between them is I have a very humble bunch of people that come with a trust in me as the builder. I don't, I actually am very fortunate to rarely contend with sort of irrational requests or something, you know, it's like people come, I have multiple, many return clients. They come for my instruments and give me the freedom to build my instruments. Um, so there's something there. And, and, I, I don't, and I don't think they don't bias towards, say, like the wealthy collector end either. Um, I get a lot of players and, and not necessarily professional players. Um, I feel like they're approachable people and, and, and perhaps, perhaps I am approachable myself and that's why I attract them. I don't know, but um, I feel really fortunate to have the, the bunch of, trusting clients that i do have yeah that's that's awesome it's, it's always the best when uh, they they trust you to do what you do yeah exactly like i am um, i say I, I don't i don't tell the dentist how to you know fix my teeth that person <laughs> is trained in that and it doesn't mean i'm like a hard ass like i i i want to have conversation and what do you want from an instrument but you know if, if you read something about how a bracing works on a forum that doesn't actually uh, equate to the, you know, 
nearly two decades of experience I have of like pushing pieces of wood back and forth and finding that spot. Yeah. You know, they're different things. And so like, I, I would, I would struggle with um, someone who wanted to sort of foist upon me the information they gleaned from the internet. I wanted to ask you about your, your shop. You currently are in a shared space, um, but it sounds like you started in a shared space too. Uh, tell me about the first shop you uh, started in and how you came to be where you are in now. Sure, yeah. Um, I think I was born with a collectivist impulse. I grew up in a really small town, 500 people. Oh, and all problems aside, people are working together at stuff, you know? And I grew up on a family farm, so we there are problems to solve and we do it together. And I, and I, I think it's just in me now. So when I started building, I, I was always interested in sharing a shop. Also understanding that it's not utopia, that there are struggles with, you know, living in close proximity with other people, but also recognizing the benefits. So I had tried to get like a little something going in my basement in Edmonton, Alberta, when I first moved here, this is pre Montreal. And so my friends, I was a painter down there with me and, a, uh, you know, a, a, another a, a graphic designer. And we worked away at our stuff. And when I moved to Montreal, um, I moved there very naively and just hoping to run into something. And, and I did. And so Michael Kennedy and, and Jeremy Clark had just finished up a, I think it was maybe three-year apprenticeship with uh, Sergey de Young. Are you familiar with Sergey's work? I'm not. He is another builder whose ideas permeate the, 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 the handmade acoustic guitar world, but he's a quiet guy. He doesn't go about it. And, he, and he's from a generation before us, you know, or a generation and a half before us. Um, what was the last, his last name again? The young, so D E J O N G E, I think. Okay. Uh, his daughter, um, Yashia, is like a world-renowned classical builder at this point. And he runs a school out of Chelsea, Quebec, uh, in Canada. So um, Mike and Jeremy had just finished a three-year apprenticeship there, moved to Montreal, um, got a space in an old, the old textile district in a loft, and set about building their guitars and, and hoping to fill the shop with more people. And so I just kind of bumped into them at the right time. They'd only been open for a couple of months at that point. They invited me in and um, it was the three of us for a while. And then Nick DeLille from Island Instruments came along and joined us. And at this point, Mylon Guitar Cooperative is, you know, 12 years, I'm guessing, old. And I don't know how many members it's had, but it probably has 10 or 12 currently there. Oh, wow. um, and is a place of a lot of innovation because there's this, there's a kind of sort of constant conversation about what if we do this with a guitar, what if we do that? And one person can try it and the next person can build on the successes and failures of that rather than in isolation, building an instrument and then modifying from there. So you, the, 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 the evolution is very rapid in that environment. Yeah. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> Uh, and it's a very welcoming environment and, and not one where people's ideas are poo-pooed or, or where someone says, well, I've been building longer, so that's dumb. It's like, it's very open and, and kind place. So I came through there. I, I forget, I, two and a half, maybe, five, you know, I'm terrible with time, two and a half, three, four years, something like that, I was there. And then I moved back to Alberta, which is, um, you know, across the country from, from Montreal because this is where my partner, where my partner is from. And, and she was going back to school to finish her master's degree. And, um, and I wanted to get something going here like that because I, I really enjoyed the experience and recognizing that it's a much smaller population and it couldn't all be guitar builders. Probably I set about starting um, an artist collective called Ficus Studios, which I ran for five years. And it was, we had a shoemaker and a bicycle frame maker and, makeup artists and we had a dark room and photographers and furniture makers. It was, a, it was, there's 22 of us in there for, for a while. Wow. Um, but I found that because the disciplines were so varied, there wasn't enough of a collective uh, 
focal point and I, I found myself becoming like a building manager, you know? Yeah. And that, well, it wasn't a bad experience. It just took too much away from the building of, of guitars. I didn't uh, get as much time as I needed. So uh, when it came time to revisit the lease agreement, I, I shut it down. And But within that space, I met Layla Sidi of Tony Instruments. Um, yeah, I've been seeing her stuff a lot lately. It's some really cool uh, designs. Yeah, and her work is impeccable. It's like uh, she comes at it with no ego. Is never I know I know person. She's always keen to learn, and because of that, she has gotten to a point that is far beyond her years as a builder. Um, and she's very brilliant that way. Um, and so she had come to actually work with my shop mate, who was a furniture maker, and she was building some furniture with him. And when we disbanded the shop, she had she decided she wanted to build a bass guitar for her girlfriend at the time. Um. So we built a bass guitar and, and then she just never stopped building guitars, you know? That's um, great. And then at that same time, I had someone come along uh, because the shop was public enough that people might just stop by and ask if I would teach him how to make guitars. And so that's Adam Turley of Turley uh, Instruments. And so when I shut the shop down, they both came with me and we started a smaller sort of uh, collective shop called Clubhouse. Is that where you're currently at now? That's right. I think I've been there five, maybe this is our sixth year. And, and how many people are in Clubhouse? There's just the three of us, but I also have a sort of perpetual student, a guy in his late 50s who's become a dear friend of mine who just comes in uh, under ideal circumstances, you know, when there isn't a pandemic and he's got a new girlfriend, so he's, he's, he's available less now, but he comes in like, once or twice a week and hangs out and builds guitars with me. Um, so there's him as well. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. The, the mile in setup seems super unique. You know, usually if you're a, a bunch of luthiers in one space, it's some kind of uh, factory or small factory where, you know, you don't have the freedom to create and build upon ideas, but yeah. that, uh, collective where everyone's doing their own thing coming up with their own ideas and other people are adopting them or uh, dismissing them uh, is really it seems like a, a great opportunity yeah it's it's really cool and um like i said it's a very supportive environment i think the history books in our small world you know there will be people who write books about this time of of guitar building not many people will read them, but other guitar builders will. And it'll talk about the Milan Guitar Shop because um, so many ideas come out of that place. Um, it's, it's, it's really unique, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people talk about how we're in the uh, golden age of guitars or golden age of luthier-made guitars. Oh, what do you think has caused that? Is it just the advent of the internet? And just information flowing freely well i think that's certainly part of it i mean i i was um not necessarily due to my age but due to my geographical location kind of pre-internet just because we didn't have internet in small town you know mm -hmm. in places yet um but I, I can watch people now uh max bone comes to mind uh i mean he studied mm -hmm. for me as well but he's a brilliant maker he's young and he certainly benefited from just being able to see hundreds of images of great guitars and how they do it and ask questions. And now he's in the position to, to, to be the one answering questions. Um, so that's certainly part of it, but not just because the, the uh, information is exchanged, but the very idea of the handmade guitar can disseminate in a way that it never could pre-internet. Just so to have a, a market for our instruments um, I think that's one of the reasons we can be so friendly and non-competitive is because the market is expanding and nowhere near its capacity yet, its maximum capacity, you know? Um, yeah. There are a lot of people buying guitars, uh, factory guitars that are, are still quite expensive at, that have no idea we exist yet. Yeah. So the internet's really expanded the market 
and then shared the information or, or allowed it, made a, a space for the information about how to build these things uh, be shared, you know, within that. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how the the golden age of guitar making is not coinciding with the golden age of guitar music. Uh, <laughs> the the, uh, the podcast I recorded uh, for the, my last episode, we talked about that. Uh, he had come up in the eighties where everyone was getting a guitar, you know. And all the music was guitar based, and and now there's so much. I don't know if there's less of it. At least the mainstream, what's being pumped out at the highest levels, is not guitar based. But uh, I don't know. People still definitely love guitar. Well, yeah, and I think that um, uh, even even though I mean, and, and, and well, that that trend will shift again. Of course, everything is cyclical. You know, like. Uh, I am suddenly in this interesting position where I'm watching like fashion that we had adopted as say 15 year olds become the fashion again. And I remember my parents laughing when I, you know, wore bell bottoms in my early twenties. Cause I was like, that's what we wore. Yeah. It's all cyclical, you know? Yeah. Um, so like guitar um, based music will at some point be prominent again. But I think that even within this period of time where, where the guitar is not front and center, the guitar is, is so part of songwriting. Um, especially an acoustic instrument, there's there's enough you can do on it, even if you're not a great player, to, to, to make the, the base of a song. You can provide rhythm um, and percussion and, and you can provide melody just to support the sort of the idea of a song. And that might never then be played on a, on a guitar. It might be played on something very different, but I think it's, it's such a portable an analog thing that, that will always facilitate songwriting. So I, uh, I reached out to you a while back, uh, about your captured nut and asked permission to try it on one of my builds. And you graciously allowed me to do so. I think it's such a, an elegant touch. Um, how did you come about this feature? Yeah. So it's something I thought about for a long time before I, um, took the time to problem solve, you know, in terms of actually introducing it to an instrument, you know, executing it. Um, so a couple of things, uh, I, I'm extremely detail oriented and, and I can't let little things go. So fitting a nut to the curve of a neck, I always did. I, I fit the nut and carve the neck with the nut sort of, temporarily glued in place so that the curve would be exact, you know, mm-hmm. of the edges. And, and, and I generally do an epoxy or oil finished neck. And so you can do that. Um, but when I started getting some requests for lacquered necks and having to fit a nut afterwards, I just hated how it wasn't perfect. <laughs> I couldn't do yeah. it. And I thought there's also then this, this edge where lacquer can chip and fray. And it's just this, this issue for me. And so then I started thinking also, you know, if a neck is going to break, or is it going to break? And of course, it's going to break in this one area that's no longer that's not laminated. You know, your your fingerboard's laminated to your neck, so that's a pretty structurally sound area. And your head veneer, if done right, you're probably have two on or at least one, and that's strong. Um, but you got this void. So I thought, well, if I just carry the fingerboard right through, um, and then you just you know, recess a nut into it, then you're you're solving a number of problems. You're making it nice and clean. It feels great. Um, it's strong. And then after I did the first one, I realized that I was going to a show. I actually forget which show. I was going to NAM, and and I thought action is so important, especially um, when a person first picks up an instrument. And it depends on what player it is. But if if it's too high. And a player feels it and, and immediately feel like, ah, oh, this is something that doesn't feel right. And it's not even conscious, subconscious. It feels too hard to play. And if you set it too low where someone, it might be perfect for somebody, a heavy handed person comes and grabs your guitar and their first uh, intersection with your brand and your build is a guitar that buzzes. Mm. So I wanted to, I was like, well then with the captured nut, I can just make a series of very small brass shims and very quickly make an instrument fit someone's playing style so that 
Capture not facilitated that, but that was an afterthought. But something that I really like about it now. Yeah, that's great. And you wouldn't be able to do that uh, with a traditional nut slot coming out the sides, and because you you'd have to glue it in. And yeah, I mean, uh, you do it, but it would look clunky. You would see it. It would it would be yeah. The logistics are harder, and and I'm you know I'm not going to spill the beans in the design, but I'm working on. Uh, and the way I work, it might be ten years till I do it, but. Um, I'm working on a sort of like adjustable version of that, not through uh, hardware, but uh, I won't go any further than that. Okay. Um, and so I like the idea of just being able to just finesse both the player's desirability, you know, player to player, but also humidity conditions and whatever as you as you travel around with that instrument. So. Well, I want to thank you so much for doing the podcast with me today. That was a great conversation. Yeah, I appreciate you contacting me, man. And, and on a personal note, I love, I love the instruments you're building. They're, well, thank you so much. They're fresh and they and they appear to be extremely well executed. And I look forward to seeing one in person someday. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I hope to run into you at a show and and meet you in person. Yeah, I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. <laughs>